And it is Bruce Claggett in for jazz. I've got a goal for the next half hour, and that is to keep an open mind and find more empathy or understanding when it comes to impaired drivers who have and suffer with addiction issues. And I say this without any background that I've given you to this point, but I'm going to be honest. I have lost very people that are very close to me in impaired driving crashes. And it still hurts me when I think about it. I've also, over the course of 30 years uh, working on and off as a reporter, beat reporter, I've seen the terrible results of impaired driving crashes where people have lost their lives. And I think it is absolutely irresponsible, senseless, senseless. And there's nothing that can be made to me make me even understand why somebody would get behind the wheel of a vehicle if they are impaired. And I say this, noting that we do have this story that's still gaining a lot of attention this week. A person that has had 21 convictions for impaired driving. Obviously, there is an issue there. And I see a headline, and I think the headline really has to be recognized for what it is. With It's saying experts say the judicial system lacks support for repeat offenders. And I pause and I think about this, and I try to find that willingness to reach out and, you know, with my heart and feel anything other than what I feel for these people who have and continue to get behind the wheel of a car. This all comes after a man racked up 21 impaired driving convictions. Yep. And finally, in this case, we see that a judge has decided that enough is enough. But there is another side, and I do recognize this. And this is why I think it's important to bring in somebody like Kyla Lee to explain and perhaps have me understand with more knowledge what's going on here when somebody gets behind the wheel of a car that many times. Kyla Lee, I mean this in all sincerity. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Kyla Lee, by the way, traffic lawyer with Acumen Law. Talked to her many times before. But Kyla, thanks for being with me this afternoon. Thanks for having me. You know, Abbotsford Police say that this man had a lengthy history of impaired driving uh, convictions, pleading guilty to another charge this past month in connection with the crash back in 2022. Um, You know, still... As a traffic lawyer, you look at somebody like this and you think that they, and they do, they, they need a defense, but how could you defend anybody with this sort of record? Well, at the end of the day, you know, everybody has constitutional rights um, that need to be protected and, and everybody has uh, the ability to respond to an allegation against them. And if and until you, you plead guilty or are found guilty, you're presumed innocent of that allegation. For a person like this, though, you know, I I have some sympathy for them because they have been failed by the system. The system, you know, you, you get to conviction number 20, this being 21, 
the system has not recognized what your actual needs are. Jail is not going to deter you. If you're getting a five-year sentence, you've already done time in jail that's been in excess of a year. If you're, if you're racking up 20 convictions for impaired driving, you're on a lifetime driving ban. So prohibiting your driver's license is not going to change your behavior. There is something far more entrenched and far more serious that is not being addressed that is contributing to this continuum of conduct that needs to be stopped. So this continuum of conduct that needs to be stopped, what do we need to do? Certainly, we must have some ideas. Yes, we need uh, better supports for people who struggle with addiction issues in the criminal justice system. It's not just impaired driving, but this is a, a stark example of it. Um, you know, we don't have specialized courts that deal with addictions. We have some drug treatment courts in Vancouver, um, but we don't have specialized DUI courts. And in the United States, there are lots of states that have specific courts that deal with people who get repeat offenses for impaired driving that put them into programs and systems that allow them to get treatment for their addiction and get out of the cycle of continuing to violate the law and continuing to rack up these charges. There are also states in the United States, if you are impaired and convicted of such, that the maximum penalty can be the death penalty. There are uh, states where, where if you are impaired and you kill somebody, you could get the death penalty. I mean, obviously, in Canada, we don't have the death penalty, and for good reason, because sometimes information can come out long after somebody's been convicted that exonerates them, and it is considered to be cruel and unusual punishment here in Canada. But we do have the, the life in jail available for people as a sentence if you kill somebody in an impaired driving accident. So it's not as though that's not a possibility, but... Aside from imprisoning somebody for the rest of their life, if you're not treating the underlying issue, they're going to continue to be a problem. And so our justice system needs to recognize that and respond to the real thing that's bringing the person before the court. I'm not even going to mention the 66-year-old's name, but when you're convicted or found to be guilty 21 times for impaired driving, uh, the system is definitely not working one way or the other, whether it is for or both ways, actually, whether it is for victims of impaired driving crashes or whether it is for the person who's behind the wheel and has to be behind the wheel for whatever reason, whatever drives them in their mind that says this is OK each and every time they get behind the car when they're impaired. What's going on here that can reasonably, you talked about uh, penalties, but that's not going to work. Supports is, uh, are you talking about supports? I'm still really trying to understand. Is it counseling? Yeah. What, what goes Counsel- on? What can change it? At, at this point, when you have that much of a history of impaired driving, you have uh, undoubtedly a very serious alcohol addiction. And usually alcohol addiction and addictions issues come from mental health and trauma. Um, So this is somebody who doesn't even need treatment for alcoholism. They need treatment for whatever it is is causing them to continue to drink and then continue to make the decision to get behind the wheel after drinking, risking their own life and risking the lives of other people. That is somebody who, who has very serious issues caring about themselves and caring about other people that could be addressed. I mean, there are great programs for trauma therapy and counseling and addictions issues in Canada, but they are not accessible through the route of the traditional justice system. They're usually only accessible to wealthy individuals who can pay to attend them. When you have clients who are repeat offenders, impaired drivers, 
What is their reaction to this? Do they know that in the sober light of day that they've done something that is horrendously wrong? Or do they shrug their shoulders? Most people that I deal with who who believe that they're guilty of an impaired driving offense and, and either want to plead guilty or want to determine whether they have a legal defense before pleading guilty are extremely remorseful. Most people, and especially people who are repeat offenders, they know the situation that they've put themselves in. And their problem is not being able to separate their alcohol use and driving. It's not a desire to put the public at risk or a desire to cause harm. And often their, their remorse over the decision that they've made to drive impaired a, a second or a third or, or however many times is so great that it drives them into a greater depression, which actually exacerbates the problem because then they turn again to alcohol to treat the feeling that they're not enjoying having to deal with. Yeah, I also find it interesting that we still see these sentences that hardly ever reflect anything that's notable in terms of jail time. Not in this case, by the way. Finally, we did say uh, four years, 356 days in jail. But uh, for first responders, people that actually end up on scene, police officers, paramedics, firefighters, what they see when these impaired drivers cause the harm, the destruction is completely different than what a Crown prosecutor even sees, let alone a defense lawyer. Do you think that there is a disconnect in the judicial system? Or do you think the judicial system, maybe conversely, is actually more likely to come down way too hard on some of these impaired drivers? Well, the sort of mechanism that the judicial system has to deal with impaired drivers is limited by the powers that judges are given under the criminal code. And unfortunately for a first-time offender, it's my opinion that the penalties under the criminal code are too harsh. Um, They result in, in, I've had clients who've committed suicide because they're terrified of the penalties. Um, They've, they've, left people unemployed, people have lost their homes because they've lost their jobs, because they've lost their driver's licenses for a year. Um, There used to be a provision of the criminal code. We never had it enacted in British Columbia, but it was uh, used in other provinces that allowed a judge to impose what was known as a curative discharge. So a person could walk away without a criminal record, um, but they would end up uh, being forced to essentially participate in treatment. They would have to willingly um, agree to this and participate in treatment. It would treat the underlying issue to try and stop people from coming back to the system again. We never brought this in in BC. We should have, and it should never have been eliminated from the criminal code because it saved a lot of lives. A curative discharge, willingness to participate in some sort of program to change. Now, that doesn't exist now in BC. That's what you're saying. It doesn't exist now in British Columbia or at all. It was removed from the criminal code in December 2018. And the closest now you can get is an agreement. And again, we don't have this in BC, but in other provinces, you can agree to have an interlock put in your vehicle. So a breathalyzer in your car that'll prevent your car from starting um, in exchange for not having a driving prohibition. But you still end up with a criminal record and there's no treatment. There's just monitoring. Do you think there is a will, a political will to change that so there is a treatment side that could result in some rehabilitation without penalty? 
Absolutely not. There's no political will to do anything that might be perceived or used by the opposition as being lenient towards impaired drivers. I mean, it's, as you said at the beginning of this segment, right, it's easy to get uh, emotional about this issue because we know it's well recognized the harm that's caused by impaired driving every year. Most people know somebody whose lives have been affected and forever changed from the actions of an impaired driver. So you don't score political points by doing something that might make life a little bit better for those people, even though it would actually make the road safer for everybody else. Okay, some really good points there, Kyla. Thanks for being patient with me because I get very emotional with this issue. I may not necessarily and don't agree with everything you say, but I think that you are articulate and you're well-learned when it comes to this issue, and I really do appreciate your insight. Well, thank you for letting me share it. (laughs)